Uh, the, the teenagers just got back yesterday from summer camp. They had a great time. And uh, for us, the little kids, uh, they're, you know, elementary age kids. We got back a couple weeks ago, and one of the things that we like to do at camp is uh, yippies and poopies. Okay, so at the end of the night, we'll kind of get together, and yippies are highlights, and poopies are lowlights, so we'll just let the kids kind of just share what their favorite things and not-so-favorite things of the week were. And it's really a pretty descriptive of first-world problems. Let me just tell you some of the, some of the poopies that were there uh, that we heard from the kids. Uh, I didn't get to ride the zip line. This one was actually uttered out of a child's mouth. Uh, their name shall, I, I'll hold back their name in case their mom and dad are here. But it says, uh, the breadstick hurt my teeth. Yeah. Uh, this one, there's no ice for my soda. I got sick on too much Mountain Dew and candy. Uh, and Mr. Gabby smashed shaving cream in my face. Okay, so those are just, you know, first world problems, right? Things that are really, make life really awful for a little kid when they're at summer camp. Um, but it's silly and light and that's okay. But for us, you know, we deal with a lot of first world problems ourselves and sometimes we get a little poopy and we start complaining about little things and we know that life isn't always fair. And I think what happens is we look at life's injustices and things just don't add up because we start thinking that if God is all good and all powerful, then it seems to me like the good guy should always win, the bad guy should always lose. And we're raised on stories of courageous cowboys and good princes and defeating the villain and rescuing the fair maiden with a kiss and riding off into the sunset on a trusty steed. You know, a little fairy tale kind of stuff. And we look at our world and we see at different places it's kind of unfair and things aren't exactly right. And we get tempted to fall into the trap that many people I think in the world do uh, to either say, well, either then with all the bad things going on, either God's not fully powerful or he's not fully good. Because if he was good, he, could, he would fix it all. If he was powerful, he could fix it all. And so we get to that thinking that started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when the Satan comes to them and he says, you know, did God really say don't eat from that tree? And which is really translation saying, you know, God just doesn't want you to be like him. God has good things that he, that he could give you, but he's holding out on you. See, God doesn't really love you that much uh, in, order, you know, in, in order to make you follow him. So he's just holding out on you. He could give it to you, but he doesn't want to. And so Adam and Eve believed it then, and we still do today, right? And we know that life is not that easy, that life's a lot messier than a, than a fairy tale, but we look around and we see a lot of bad guys winning, a lot of good guys losing, and we wonder sometimes for us, if we're trying to be good guys and good gals, you know, is it worth it? Is it really worth it trying to be good? What's the benefit of being godly? And in those moments, when life is not all that it seems that we should want, we, it creates this discontent in our own hearts. And sometimes it's quiet, and sometimes it's really outward. But it's, think about our moment where we are right now. We've got a pandemic going, social unrest, the kids haven't been in school, we got economic downturn. We got anxiety and depression rising. I don't know if you heard recently. There's a stat that 93,000 deaths in 2020 from drug overdoses, highest they've ever had. Um, you know, we have this fear that God's holding out on us, that He has these good things, won't give them to us, and so sometimes we feel like it's the bad people, the people who don't follow God, who get all the breaks in life. And so it's pretty hard sometimes not to compare our lives with those people that are around me. So here we are, Psalm, uh, we're, we're doing this summer series, uh, summer songs of uh, looking through all the Psalms, um, 
Today we're gonna be in Psalm 73. So if you wanna turn your Bible on or flip over there, Psalm 73, it's one of my favorite Psalms. Um, years ago, a preacher named Haddon Robinson, I heard a message on this, and man, it just stuck with me. And this has been, I was just telling somebody, this has been marinating in my heart for 20, 25 years. And, and so we're gonna look today at this author. His name is Asaph. He's the author, he wrote it. And so he's gonna talk to us today a little bit about his feelings of discontent, depression, when life isn't fair. And so for me, a little bit of my story, my little testimony is um, I was, I had kind of a modest upbringing in Hayward. You know, we didn't, we had everything we needed, not everything we wanted, but that's all right. Just a basic kind of middle-class life. Didn't have all the newest toys and clothes, but we had enough. And we learned early on, dad and mom instilled it, you know, if you, if you work hard for things, then you can, you know, you can get, usually earn what you get, and you gotta, but you gotta work hard for it. But sometimes you don't always get what you want. And so I was raised in the Catholic Church and grew up with this really strong sense of, you know, God's justice and power and sovereignty and his holiness. And so for me, there was always this kind of really strong reverence um, and respect for God that you just don't flippantly approach God. And there was this unsaid belief that kind of comes along with that. And I don't know if any of you have felt this way as well, but you kind of get also, you get what you deserve. So God is holy and righteous and pure and just and all those things. But then also you get, you, you get what you deserve, so don't mess up. Okay, it's a little bit, well, also, if you do mess up, then you can expect that he's gonna make you pay. And you can always pretty much tell how you're doing based on how well your life is going because if something goes wrong, you could just look back and think, oh yeah, I did that bad thing and it must be God repaying me. Well, that's really bad thinking. It's awful theology. It's actually a lot more like karma and that's how really most of the world lives <clears throat> is with karma. But there's something rather enticing, I think, about karma, this getting what you deserve. And I think that sometimes we default to that because what, this is what happens is you can, with karma, you can kind of um, uh, control God at a certain level by how you live. See, if you are good, then God's obligated to bless you. And if you're bad, it's okay if he punishes you. But it's actually idolatry. Because you're not worshiping the one true and holy God. It's actually you worshiping yourself because you have control because you can manipulate how God is supposed to treat you. Now, it sounds good to say, no, no, no. I just, I get what I deserve. But again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. You don't want what you deserve. Right, okay, so that's a whole other message. But there's not a lot of grace involved with karma. It can be very frustrating, as you know, to try to predict an unpredictable God. And it doesn't seem fair that those who are not as good uh, get what they want, and I didn't when I'm trying to be good. See, I had this friend who years ago, big job, car, money, power, the whole thing, position, and he always told me, uh, he would say, well, man, I would trade all of that, all my money, all the position, all that stuff, for that simple life that you got with a, a devoted wife and kids and just doing the simple things you know, in life. And, and, you know, at the time, we were pretty stressed financially, and, and life was pretty tough, and he had all he wanted. He would buy anything he wanted. He had the big career, all that kind of stuff. And the thing is, is I looked at him, and I, I didn't say it to his face, I should have, but um, I said, you know what? I don't think you would. I don't think you would make that trade, because I don't think it would satisfy you. You see, I think if we're all honest at certain times, our heart can be pretty conflicted because it's really hard sometimes not to measure ourselves by our job, our money, our portfolio, our status, our popularity, our square footage. I mean, I mean, just all the things that we have ranked ourselves with since junior high, right? We know those things aren't the most important things. We want peace and character and integrity. We know that those are more important, but we wonder why we can't I have both. 
So Asaph is wrestling with all these things. He had some neighbors up the road a little bit, um, just like my friend, pretty much. Let's just call him Jones, okay? The guy up the street, his name is Jones from Asaph, and Asaph's having trouble because he's wanting to keep up with them, and he just can't. Well, and so the Jones family, you know, I'm sure you have some of these people in your life. They were, well, they're just those people. You got some those people in your life? You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying. You're gonna know what I'm saying when I get into it. I mean, Jones, he didn't go to temple or synagogue. His name was on the roll, but he just didn't attend very often. Uh, He had a boat that used to go on the Sea of Galilee on the weekends. The grain grew high on his land, you know, the one up on the hill with the house, nice house up there. The latest chariots parked in his driveway. Great looking kids, straight A's at synagogue all the time, you know. His wife had all the latest fashions, never seemed to struggle with weight or money or marriage or anything like that. And Asaph, poor Asaph, boy, he's, he's looking at himself and things just don't seem right. He invested in olive oil and the market tanked. I mean, a couple years ago, Jones invested in olive oil and it took off. He made a killing. Asaph's blade uh, plow needs a new blade. His ox is sick and aging. His kids are in a rough patch. In fact, his marriage is too. So Asaph is spiraling down this trap of comparison of discontent and, and that stealing his peace and everything seems unfair. And he says it's causing his feet to slip. And he admits that he's anxious because Asaph's one of the good guys and he wasn't being rewarded for it. So let's look at verse one through three. Now, what's happening here is Asaph is kind of giving you the conclusion at the front end, right? You Kids, you know when you write a paper, what do you say? Tell them what you're gonna tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. So Asaph is telling them what you're gonna tell them. Conclusion at the beginning, here's the big idea. And he says this, verse one through three. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he starts with that conclusion. And he's talking about his battle now that he's having with jealousy and and discontentment. And so we're gonna go down the list here of all the things that he's struggling with. And the first one is in verse three. And he says, Asaph was bothered by Jones's wealth. I I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, because even though Asaph had a really nice home, it didn't have the square footage of Jones's. I mean, Asaph's chariot ran just fine, but it was a couple years older. I mean, you know, Jones had one with the spinner's on the wheels and latest gadgets for kids and stuff like that. So it's his wealth. He was bothered by that. Number two is his health. Asaph was bothered by Jones's health. Verse four, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. And maybe Asaph's thinking this one day when he's driving his kid to the clinic and it seemed like, you know, Jones never really has to make this trip. I got a stack of medical bills. It seems like Jones doesn't really have to pay that stuff. The NASB's translation says, for there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. Now that kind of fat's a good thing because that means back then, that means you got plenty to eat. Would have been nice living back then, huh? (laughs) Fat's a compliment. Um, But he was healthy, that's what it meant. Uh, Number three, Asaph was bothered by Jones's easy life. Look at verse five. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. So just the basic stuff of life doesn't seem like Jones ever deals with that stuff. Do you know a Jones like that? Years ago, I had a a guy in our neighborhood. I mean, this guy literally built a bigger shed to store all his expensive toys. Uh, He adds on to his home, beautiful new room. He worked at home. I was driving over the Altamont. He was away almost every weekend, going to the lake, doing all the things that I wanted to do. 
And I wondered at times that this guy ever struggled. And I'll be lying if I didn't say that I was you know, looking over the edge of my push mower, watching him ride his John Deere, not thinking that his grass was greener over there. And number four, Asaph is bothered by Jones's pride. Look at verse six. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. So it says Jones is wearing that pride like a necklace. And if you ask him, boy, he was a self-made man. He always got the job promotion, always made sure Asaph heard about it. Jones had a me monster that came out with every bonus and business trip and power lunch. Asaph, you know, he, he didn't really talk much about himself because frankly, there wasn't that much to say. And Jones was a violent as, long as, as, as well as proud. It says that here, he clothes himself in violence. And really, I think that means he's just learned geometry well. He knows that the best way to get somewhere is a straight line. And so if it meant running over somebody to get the promotion or to get the position, he was gonna do it. And poor Asaph, you know, he tried to be a witness to Jones. Hey, Jones, you know, you need God. And it's like, hey, look, Asaph, if you wanna follow God, that's great for you. But I've never really been that religious. You know, and I'm not gonna start now. So I'm fine. My, my life is good. And you see that in verse eight and nine. They scoff and they speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Verse nine, their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. <laughs> so Asaph wanted to tell Jones that he needed God and Jones just deflects and says, oh, come on, Asaph, you know, I believe in God. I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. And you can just hear him right here what, what Asaph says with his mouth laying claim to heaven, thinking, I'm a good guy. I'll be up there. I'll be in heaven. Don't worry about me. You know, but he wants the kingdom without the king. It's like those times when you meet somebody and you try to love them because Jesus told you to. <laughs> and you just don't like them. You know these people. Their personality just grates on you. And you can, now like, I, you know, everybody kind of chuckles a little bit, but like, you can pretend that these people are not in your life because we're at church, but come on. We all know. And we know when we meet these people, we can size them up pretty fast, can't we? I like our brain as a supercomputer, just mentally filleting them in our mind about like all the things that they do and they don't do. And Asaph is doing that with Jones. You can just hear it in the tone. He doesn't like Jones. He compares, he critiques, and he tries, but he just doesn't stack up against Jones. And we know that our culture, you guys, is built on dissatisfaction and comparison and jealousy. The whole purpose of TV and media and the internet is to create dissatisfaction. And we've been saturated in that from the time that we were kids. You know, Let's be honest, come on. The internet or TV, it's not about producing, producing beneficial content for our betterment. <laughs> no, they're making money off you. So the better the show, the more they can charge. That's why they can charge five and a half million dollars for a 30 second spot during the Super Bowl because everybody's watching. So they make a good show so that people will watch and can charge more. I'm not, am I telling you something new? Okay, but we pretend like that has no effect on us. You got people, experts, spending millions of dollars trying to figure out how to make us want what we don't have, how to make us not want what we do have. And we think we're unaffected until we see that house or car, outfit, purse, toy, or technology that we want. And Jones has it, 
and we ain't. So you remember growing up, all these commercials for the action, I remember for me, action figures, you know, the commercials. And somewhere, some kids got like a little river floating through his backyard and, uh, and little stone houses and logs and all this stuff, you know. And so when G.I. Joe comes in, it's like super cool in the commercial. Like, and, and you know, you get the toy and you bring it home and you're like, well, my backyard didn't look like that. It's not nearly as cool. I mean, there's only so many times you can have Ben Kenobi and, and Darth Vader fight, you know, with a lightsaber and, ah, and they die and fall over. Like, it's not as fun as it looks on the commercial, is it? And you know if you bought Christmas gifts for your kids, you, know, you spend all the time and money getting that perfect gift, it takes 20 minutes to get the zip ties off and the plastic wrap and all that stuff, you know, that, like it's Fort Knox for this toy, what the heck, you know, and you finally get it open and, and, and for 10, they play with it for 10 minutes and then you turn around and pretty soon they're playing in the box and the toy's forgotten, right? And how quickly little kids grow discontent. And not much has changed since we were kids, has it? As adults, the same thing. You see, we, we'd like to think that we're not very much like Jones, but I think way too often we let the world just define what kind of person we are. As if our car's horsepower, our square footage, our fashionability, our job title, our portfolio, our kids' abilities in sports or school or vacations or lack of all those things define who we are. <laughs> That's sad. Guys, we're... We are children of the king. And we have untold spiritual riches. We are a new creation in Christ. We have so many more reasons not to compare ourselves with the people around us. So Asaph, though, he's looking for that. He's trying to gather up God's people and his, his people and, and he, who should have known better. And he doesn't see a whole lot difference in their lifestyle. Number five here. So Asaph is bothered by God's people. For respecting Jones. Look at verse 10. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. This is a, the toughest verse in the psalm. It says their people, but really it means his people. And it, it could mean Jones's people, but really I think what it is is his people is going back to verse one where it's talking about God's people. It's talking about Israel. So he's saying, could it be that even God's people are basking in Jones's glow? And Asaph's thinking, it's like, come on. You guys are just like everybody else. Don't you see through this guy? And so even God's people respected the way Jones played the game and got ahead. They liked the way he made his life work. And I'm sure Jones was very funny and influential and stuff, kind of guy you'd want to network with and stuff. And while you can sit back and think, oh, that guy's a blowhard. Uh, she's fake and conniving. You might just get drawn in by that person still. Look at verse 11. They say, well, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. So the, the, the wicked, the people who do disregard God, the people out there who just are indifferent to God, they don't really care. They might say they believe in God, but they're not following. They figure, well, God doesn't see, God doesn't care about those things. I mean, think about it. How many people in your regular life at work or wherever just are so indifferent to God, they just act as if he didn't exist, even though they think he might. You know, I mean, really, if we're all just cosmic chaos, just it's survival of the fittest, and we all just came from primordial goo, what does it matter? Does the Most High know? Does he see anything? 
So even God's people are acting like this. And he's like, hey, they're like, you know, hey, Asaph, listen, we're religious. We go to synagogue too, but you gotta give the guy credit. I mean, after all, a man's gotta live. And it seems to me that whenever somebody says that, a man's gotta live, they're fixing to sell their soul at a bargain price because you don't have to live. You have to die, but you don't have to live. And I just tend to think that that phrase is a poor excuse that a greedy heart makes when they're ready to sin. Number six, Asaph's ultimate battle is with a comparison trap. Verse 13 and 14, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. Listen, he's really at the depth of all his depression here. He says, all day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. I mean, wow, he's at the bottom. It summarizes the whole feelings of frustration that he's had that it just seems like living for God doesn't pay. And he's wondering, well, am I ever gonna be content in trying to live my life for God? Can you imagine if Asaph had social media? <laughs> Dude, seeing Jones's posts all the time. Now, I mean, this is not some kind of fundamentalist attack on social media. I have it too. But you gotta ask yourself, I mean, really, how wise is it, really, to spend even an hour a day exposing yourselves to thousands of people's airbrushed lives. Because I really think that if your heart leans toward comparison and discontent, is that really helpful? I mean, the Joneses of your life, and we all have Joneses, likely are social media perfection. Flawless photos, best angles, doing all the coolest things with all the best people. You see, I mean, for all the old people out here, you know, Facebook, uh, Facebook is a discontentment factory. And for you younger guys, you know, Instagram, the whole business strategy is about comparison. It's making you want what you don't have. And so for, perhaps there's a reason then why God put do not covet in the top 10. See, because I, I tend to think that there's like a spectrum of comparison. When you, when you start dealing with like comparison stuff, you've got over here, you've got kind of the prideful side of the comparisons thing where you see everybody else and you just assume that you're better off than they are. And so you're more acceptable. So you've got, you know, morally, spiritually, ethically, whatever it is, you're just, you just, you're, you're more prideful. So you just, your temperament, personality bent, you just tend to think that you're kind of better than everybody else. But then there's another whole side of the spectrum over here that's kind of the anxiety and guilt side of the spectrum. It's, it, these would be people whose temperament just kind of leans toward seeing everybody else and thinking that everybody else is better than they are, spiritually, morally, ethically, whatever, and so you don't deserve acceptance as much. And you know, a lot of us are somewhere in the middle. But if you, this is just a rule of thumb, you know, if you wanna feel better about yourself, you can always find some loser who's worse off than you. Am I right? And if you want to feel cruddy about yourself, you can always find somebody. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. If you want to feel better about yourself, um, yeah, you can always find somebody who's worse off. If you want to feel uh, cruddy about yourself, you can always find somebody who's better off than you are. So it's just this, uh, this game that we play. Because I think that either end of the comparison spectrum gives you an incomplete view of God. Because if you're prideful, if you approach life from a prideful view, as you look around at other people, that's definitely sinful. But if you also approach life from an anxiety, guilt-ridden and perspective that you're never gonna be acceptable, that's also a sin. 
And what it does is it gives you an incomplete, false view of God. Because the only one we should be comparing ourselves to is God himself, the one holy, living, true God. And when you do, you will be rid of your pride because you will know that your, your righteousness is as filthy rags. So there's no place for pride. And you'll also be rid of your guilt and anxiety because you'll realize that your sin has been removed and you are acceptable by Christ dying for you on the cross. And so a false and incomplete view of God, whichever side it is, is deadly. As a little aside, can I take a parenthesis here? Boom. Uh, be careful about your discontentment with wealth. You know, if you're going to compare wealth, don't compare it with people in Tracy or this area or America in general. Don't compare it with your neighbor. Compare, if you want to compare wealth, which I don't suggest, but do it again, let's try it for fun, okay? Let's compare it with the world. Because I think that we take, it, we take for granted the riches that we have in America. There's a website, howrichami.com, okay? Here's what it says. If you're a family of four in America and you make $100,000, I want you to know you are richer than 96.9% of the world. You are the top 3% of the world. And if you were to be, gen to be giving and give 10% of your income, which is a good baseline of what God has called us to do, then you would live on 90,000. You would still be 96.2% richer than the rest of the world, or richer than 96.2%. Your income would still be 11.8 times greater than the global median. If you make 150,000, you're in the top 98.8% of the world. You are the 1%. And you don't even have to occupy Wall Street to get there. Okay, that's you. That's a joke. Come on, everybody. Golly, man. Uh, but after you give your 10% and you live on 140,000, you're still in the 98.5% per, um, percentile. If you, live on 70, if you make $75,000, you're richer than 94.5% of the world. If you gave 10%, lived on 65,000, you are still 93.4 percentile. So I'm just curious how the other 95% of the world would feel if they heard us in this room say that we're poor. <laughs> because now compared to the other richer people in the Bay Area and stuff, yeah, we have less, but we're certainly not poor. And compared to the rest of the world, we are wonderfully rich. So I think we should be a little bit more careful about our words, okay? Partly because there's little ears listening. Asaph knows it in verse 15. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. You see, Asaph's wise enough to know that he better keep his mouth shut. Because if he indiscriminately shares his discontent, it's going to affect other people, particularly his children. See, if your discontent is oppressive to you, imagine how much more oppressive it is to your children who don't understand the idea of perspective and are we going to make it? Am I, are we going to lose the house? Are we going to be able to eat? Uh, right? Now, I'm not saying don't wrestle with these questions. You have to. I'm just saying be careful with your discontent. Because please don't think that your striving is lost on your kids. They see it. And we've all seen parents whose discontent has bred uh, entitlement and materialism in their kids. 
when they should be instilling faith, joy, and peace. And so have questions. Take your questions instead, though, to God instead of sharing them indiscriminately. And let me just say, I just don't think it's wise to post that stuff online and air it to the world. Rather, work it out quietly with your father one-on-one. And Asaph wisely does that. So this is a hinge verse right here. Verse 17, it's a turning point because it says that now Asaph has the sure footing of worship. Look at what it says in verse 17. Until I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. He had to go into the sanctuary of God to finally get some understanding. And, and, and listen, this is what we call church. It's God's people coming together to meet and God meeting them there. And it's much more about, um, about meeting with God than it is just being in a building. We know that. I mean, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being at McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. We know these things, right? So, but here's a question. And uh, I can say this because I'm the kid's pastor. Um, <laughs> you can send your emails to Mike. Um, but listen, I, I, I do think that COVID has revealed a lot of people's true feelings about being a church family. And I'm curious if the lockdown hasn't been an easy excuse to disengage and to neglect church. And this is tough because I know uh, some who have yet to return to be with their church family and they watch online sometimes. And, but they don't have, seem to have much of a problem traveling or eating out or gathering other places in public and then posting it. This is not a condemnation. It's an observation. And I know some people watching online, you know, it's easy on your couch to be really comfy and I'm glad you're with us. Uh, but for some of you, it's time to come back to church in person, worship, care groups, being with God's people. Because if you are okay going out to a store or a restaurant, but you're worried about church because of COVID being dangerous, you might wanna be a little careful because your priorities are showing. Corporate worship with the church family, being in community in person keeps your feet on firm ground. Okay, thank you. There's a story of a little girl. She wanted to go to church. And dad said, no, honey, we're not gonna go today. We're gonna go to the beach. And he could see that she was upset. And he says, oh, honey, you know, we can worship God just as easily on the beach as we can going to church. And she says, yeah, but we don't, do we? And we won't, will we? See, ultimately, this is not about where you are physically. It's about where you are spiritually. Because the Bible says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You, our body is a temple. And in and, and the Old Testament thinking, the temple was where God lived. That was his residence. So you are where God lives. God's Holy Spirit lives within you. And so you are more of a sanctuary than this building. So the sanctuary that Asaph's talking about is his time alone with his father, where you get this need for perspective and wisdom and understanding, and that comes in time with Father God. So whether that's in this building right now, or whether it's tomorrow on your commute, or whether it's later this afternoon sitting in your backyard looking at your flowers and birds, I don't care. Just get some time alone with your father because the sanctuary is where you, rest your, where you reset your priorities and you get your perspective back. 
You reject the myopic view that you see only what's right in front of you about life on this earth. And you raise your head up and you worship the God of creation and you say, Lord, your ways are higher than my ways. I will trust you. You see, when Asaph met with God, he got answers to his questions and he got the eternal view and he had peace. And he sees the ultimate end of those who choose to live ignoring God. And so his feelings about Jones begin to change. And my, so my guess is with a lot of us here, it's not that we need our circumstances to change. We just need our perspective to change. A perspective to understand the things that we already know. And that's why he says it right here. Uh, the next verses in 18 through 20. So Asaph spent some time in God's sanctuary, spending time with his father, worshiping, and here's what he comes to. Two things. Number one, he overestimated Jones's prosperity. Look at verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. You see what I just said a second ago about that comparison trap. What happens is we always compare what we don't know about others with what we do know about ourselves. You don't know what that other person is dealing with who looks so great online. You only know about what crud you're dealing with. But they don't know about it, maybe. You see, I really think that if you want to feel poopy, you can always find somebody better off than you. And if you want to feel superior, you can always find somebody worse off than you. But our comparisons there are never objective. It's always subjective. And Asaph sees that his earlier descriptions and comparisons with Jones were completely subjective. So whereas verse 2, Asaph mentions that he had almost slipped, here he says, no, 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 Jones is the one on slippery ground. He's the one cast down, swept away. And so let's think about the last year. How has COVID upset your contentment? Did it expose some of the idols in your heart? Did it take your focus off the Father? Were you anxious and fearful, having a hard time trust God? Were you angry and short-tempered? Or are you? You know, freedoms, things that you take for granted, you always had that, you know, now they're unavailable. Are you worried about how God's gonna provide? Are you contentious and divisive because of all the, the disunity going on in the country? Did your feet slip? Are you on slippery ground? Are you swept away by terrors? Was your heart grieved? Is it? Or your spirit embittered? And if so, are you entering the sanctuary of God to get understanding of the final destiny? See, I think that neighbor that I had years ago, uh, as far as I know since, his marriage ended. He's gotta be in huge debt. Still searching for worldly things to satisfy and who knows, maybe his grass is even turning brown. And my other friend, the one that said he would trade it all, soon afterwards lost his job, his position, his money, had to start everything all over. As far as I know right now, he's in these shallow bachelor type relationships and he's estranged from his family. Slippery ground. So Asaph overestimated Jones's prosperity, and number two, he underestimated his own prosperity in God. Verse 22 through 24, I was senseless and arrogant. I was a brute beast before you. Look at that confession. Lord, I was like a brute beast before you. What was I thinking? Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. 
You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. See, Asaph admits that his bitterness comes from his ignorance, ignorance of his true place in God and Jones's lack of relationship with God. And our response to our discontent should be like that of Asaph and say, Lord, I'm a brute beast. I forgot who's holding my hand. So I grew up in Hayward, like San Lorenzo area. Does anybody, if anybody was from over there, do you remember growing up, there was an old roller skating rink called Val Vista? Anybody? Donnie remembers. Do you remember what, what color the floor was? Baby blue. Oh my gosh, it was so ghetto. <laughs> but I loved it, man. I loved Val Vista. I would, every birthday party I want was it, wanted was at Val Vista. And I remember going there as a little guy and I was learning how to roller skate and stuff. And my dad, you know, is with me out there and he's holding me up. And I, you know, learning how to skate, you know, squirrely you get, you know, when you're a little guy. And so I slipped, and just before my feet hit the ground, my dad, whoop, you know, yanks me back up. And, you know, you just kind of, as a kid, you just kind of instinctively cry because, you know, about the, the pain you potentially almost had, you know? And, uh, and I realized I wasn't hurt. And now for the rest of the day, there it is. I was skating like a monkey, you know, just going crazy with my green sweater. <laughs> Midriff? I don't know. But there I am, hair and all, and, you know, just slipping and sliding all over the place. Total freedom just to do whatever I wanted to do. Why? Because it's amazing what you'll venture when you know the strength of the one holding your hand. And it's amazing what contentment you can have when you see your riches in Christ and you see your Father providing for you. You see, we gotta see the big picture in life of God's character and take time in the sanctuary to get that. Guys, we are co-heirs with Christ, the Bible says. We have an inheritance that can never spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. We don't have worries about future security. I mean, don't worry about social security. I found out that the, the year that I turned 65 is the year that social security is gonna go insolvent. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Who cares? I have, an, I have an inheritance in Christ. I'm sealed by the Spirit. And what, what Christ inherits, I inherit. I have riches beyond compare. What am I thinking? It's like, how dare I complain and compare what I don't have or do have like an entitled, petulant child? Come on now. Asaph's contentment and confidence is because God is right there with him, holding his right hand. And he just concludes, now that he's regained his foothold, he says, Lord, I have my perspective. And look at this. this is, if you're doing the memory verse, this is our memory verse right here. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. That's beautiful. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. See, Asaph goes through the process and he realizes something that we all know, but too seldom believe, that to have everything and not have God is to be incredibly poor. But to have nothing and to have God, you are indescribably rich. So just as he said in verse one, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
And so Asaph leaves comparison and discontent behind and nothing has changed. <laughs> Jones still has his chariots and is still prideful, still wealthy and healthy and the situation has not changed at all. But what's changed? Asaph's perspective. Asaph changed. He entered into this funk feeling sorry for himself and he left it feeling sorry for Jones because Jones is on slippery ground with a desperate need for God. And man, this has been my favorite psalm for years. It's always spoken to me. And, um, you know, years ago, we were in a really tough spot financially. Just, you know, I can't say we're poor because I just said, don't say you're poor. But um, it, was, it was rough. And we were given faithfully just as a matter of obedience, you know. And, but at times you wonder if it's worth it. And I got a friend who made probably double what I did. And I was at his house helping him build something, adding on to his house. And he had just gone to his company's year-end banquet. And he was complaining to me that the bonuses had been delayed. You see, at the year-end banquet, he only got 10000 And he was going to have to wait till March to get his additional 8000 Now, I don't know if he knew we were living paycheck to paycheck. He must have. We were good enough friends. Uh, I gave him the benefit of the doubt that he didn't realize how it sounded or who he was talking to. <laughs> but here's the thing. I remember feeling like, I remember saying to myself, I was like, that's just a voice from below. I said it over and over. I said, voice from below, voice from below. Because I knew that's the enemy trying to get at me. Like, is God holding out on you? Is it worth you following God? You could get a bonus. Why don't you go do something else? You can get a bonus. Why are you struggling so bad? Does God not want you to have good things? All those voices from below. But I, what I realized is, and I, so I put it away because I realized I was content because I had already worked out in my heart about contentment with my father in the sanctuary. And the funny thing is, my friend hadn't. So he had twice as much money and half as much peace. See, my time in the sanctuary, God was breaking my hold of worry about money in my own heart because I had a father in heaven who was my refuge and I wasn't gonna let the, the desires of the earth, nothing on this earth I desire but you. And let me just say, if you feel like uh, that spirit of discontent and materialism has a little grip on you, the best way to break it is to be more generous. And you just trust the Lord that, Lord, I'm gonna be generous, I'm gonna give. It'll, it'll break that, that chain for you. So everybody, let's, uh, let's spend some time with God in the sanctuary of our own heart and with his people. And let's understand that you may not keep up with Jones, but you are rich beyond compare. And you may not have all that you want, but you certainly have all that you need. And then with confidence, you can say with Asaph, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And as for me, it's good to be near God. Let's pray.